Do the trashy pulp novels of the world have anything to offer? Our bestseller is all they're cracked up to be. Here at Terrible Book Club, we explore whether you really can judge a book by its cover or its ridiculous synopsis. You ever passed a book and thought, ugh, who's reading this? We probably are. Welcome to part one of episode 182 of the Terrible Book Club. I'm Chris, and this is Paris. Hello. And we are joined by our special guest, the Good Witch of the Northeast. Hello. This time, we read Wicked, Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West by Gregory Maguire. Kid. <laughs> Dude. This book was recommended to us by the Good Witch of the Northeast, which is why she is present here, um, who is today's guest. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Most welcome. I also like that you're really embracing the part by wearing a cape to today's recording. <laughs> this room is cold. It's a shawl. <laughs> it's a cape for the purposes of today's episode. <laughs> we had so much to say about this book, and it was nearly 500 pages, so we've decided to structure this review into a two-parter here. Today is part one, and you'll get part two next week. If this is your first time listening to the show, what we do here at the Terrible Book Club is read books that we assume will be bad based on their cover, title, summary, or some combination of the three. Sometimes, like today, we read books that our patrons, listeners, or witches recommend. So we do the opposite of what most people do in the bookstore while they're browsing the internet. Usually this experiment results in a disappointing read, but once in a while we end up liking the book. In addition to our usual barnyard language, today's episode includes discussion or mention of ableism, racism, sex, and sexual assault. Everyone's here again. Yeah, we're all the here. Whole crew. crew. Thanks for coming out. Crew, back together. Ugh. Okay, so I'm going to read the back of the book summary from Amazon, which I really just lifted off from there. That is, Yeah, that's how we do it. Because mm -hmm. actually, you know what? Good Witch of the Northeast, you have the actual book. I do indeed. Analog. I wonder if that's different than the Amazon one. I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see. Why don't? Yeah, actually. If, yeah, let's. You know what? Let's, let's let the guest have a little bit of yeah. play here. When Dorothy triumphed over the Wicked Witch of the West in L. Frank Baum's classic tale, we heard only her side of the story. But what about her arch nemesis, the mysterious witch? Where did she come from? How did she become so wicked? Gregory Maguire creates a fantasy world so rich and vivid that we will never look at Oz the same way again. Yeah, that's that's fair. <laughs> Wicked is about a land where animals talk and strive to be treated like first-class citizens. Munchkinlanders seek the comfort of middle-class stability, and the Tin Man becomes a victim of domestic violence. And then there is the little green-skinned girl named Elphaba, who will grow up to become the infamous Witch of the West. A smart, prickly, and misunderstood creature who challenges all our preconceived notions about the nature of good that is indeed different. Very from, different. From the Amazon thing, which is like, hey, you remember Wicked, the, the musical thing? Here's Gregory yeah. Maguire's. 
oh, how the turns have tabled over the years. Because I'm assuming the the back of the book you just read was probably earlier than the summary we pulled from the internet. Yeah, that looks like a well-loved copy. It has the, the cover art for the hard copy that I have, I think, is art for the musical. Oh, right, right. That's it's right. that, like, smirking witch with Glinda whispering in her ear. But mm -hmm. the, everything inside looks like from a but like it was designed by somebody different so i'm thinking it's probably the content <laughs> yes yeah that's uh, the original a, cover with, with different cover art yeah there's like the original covers in there in black and mm -hmm, white mm -hmm. oh well thank you thank you good witch of the northeast appreciate that chris would you like to take us through our characters and setting for You've the day got it so there's a there's a cast here it's a lengthy novel as we mentioned uh we have of course alphaba wicked witch of the west you're wondering how they came up with that name. It's not a good story. It's not a it good turns story. Out, yeah. uh, we have Elphaba's family. Melina, Blade of Mikola, her mother. <laughs> Frexpar the Godly. Oh. Very Elden Ring parents <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah. Um, and Nessa Rose, Elphaba's sister. There is Turtle Heart, who is mom and dad's side piece. Yeah. Which is a whole thing, of course. That oh, we'll you get forgot into. Shell, the brother. Of course, because like, yeah, he, he he's, does he matter? Fine. He's not no. relevant. No, all right. He's sir not appearing in this film. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> only Correct. by mention. Yes, uh, we have Galinda, just some lady. Apparently, no one calls her the Good Witch or anything until like the very, very end when she turns into Glinda. Dropping the A, I guess, is like dropping the bourgeoisie. Thing. No, she was called Glinda as like a slight to her as a common nickname, and then she later adopted it because she just got tired of correcting everyone. How is Glinda an insult? I thought that she dropped the G when um, Ama Clutch died. Oh, yeah. I think there's like yeah, a right. Saint Glinda. <gasps> and you're fucking she right. was you're fucking out right. of respect to her dear departed. She was like, I will adopt this. And to get a little more clout by being named the same as the saint, probably. <laughs> then we have some Shiz University colleagues. Oh, I, I'm never not going to laugh at that. Shiz University. We have Fierro, Tibbet, Crope, Dr. Dillamond, Averick, Buck. Oh. Yeah, really, like a lot of Elden so, Ring stuff before Elden Ring. Maybe this was weird. an inspiration, actually, I, for Elden Ring. No way. There can, that cannot be true. Uh, we have Madame Morrible. And Grammatic, her robot butler. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, her TikTok butler. Yep, that's a real thing. Uh, he's just always scrolling all the time. He's just he, random bullshit <laughs> videos about how to knives, like, make, seems like. <laughs> make mashed potatoes out of potato chips oh, or whatever. Oh, God. Uh, we have capital A animal, See, which I'm, is different okay. from lowercase a animal. Yes. Yeah, so I, in my mind, to differentiate them, I was saying animals <laughs> and animals because I mean, whatever I, works. It's this. It's just the A is capitalized, and I'm like, well, there's got to be a, a like a verbal difference. So animals is what I was saying. You ha I mean, the Dr. Dilliman that we mentioned is one. There is an elephant princess later. The cowardly lion appears as a cub and then in his movie form also just mentioned in passing. Yeah, of course. So, you know, like sentient humanoid animal people. Well, it's weird because they're not they're sentient and they have human language and they walk upright, but they're not like wearing shirts and ties. Right. I, I assume very, so. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, the actual Wizard of Oz, of course. Uh, Dorothy and Company, because the movie's in here. 
And this all takes place in the land of Oz, which we find is divided into Munchkin Land, the Vincus, Gillikin, and the Glickus and Quadling Country. Right. There's also a place called Ugabu on the map that never shows up for any reason. No, nope, it doesn't matter. Maybe it shows up in the other books in this series, this most unfortunate continuation of this book. Okay, so with all that rich and deep lore that we've already established, mm. Paris, why don't you hit us with the quite lengthy summary oh, yeah. that we wrote together um, so that people listening to the show have some idea of what's going on as we go through our two-parter discussion. To be fair, Chris, you wrote most of this. I, I did not contribute that much. So it is my, my solemn duty today to read this. <clears throat> Frex and Melina sure have it hard out here in Munchkinland, what with Frex's preaching being threatened by the TikTok heresy. Frex is clearly being tested by the unnamed god, which is, of course, why his wife Melina births a green baby with pointy teeth and a penchant for using them. That's Alphaba, our protagonist. We get some early life scenes of how her parents are weird and have a weird relationship with Uncle Turtleheart, the glass and mom blower from Quadling Country. Alphaba grows up and heads to Shiz University after her sister, Nessa Rose, and even younger brother, Shell, are born. Really coherent naming scheme there, Frex and Melina. At Shiz, Alphaba meets Galinda, her pretentious upper-crust roommate. They have a testy relationship, but more or less end up liking each other. Along for the ride are various fellow students, including Fiero, Crope, Tibbet, and Bach. Alphaba takes interest in the rights of animals, who are non-human animals who walk upright and have sentience and human language abilities, think the Cowardly Lion, that have become the target for persecution by certain factions of Oz politics. In particular, Alphaba is interested in the research of Dr. Dillamond, who is looking into the genetic differences between regular animals, animals, and humans. That's all cut short when Dillamond is found dead in his lab. Alphaba suspects Madame Morrible, the headmistress of Shiz, who often turns her nose up at Alphaba and her woke agenda. Morrible has a excuse me, TikTok butler, Grammatic, who Alphaba learns was seen near Dilliman's office absconding with a knife at the time of his murder. Morrible brings Alphaba, Galinda, and Nessa Rose, who's also now at Shiz, into her office and attempts to recruit them to some vague secret society or cause and insinuates that she has cast some kind of NDA spell on them. Alphaba leaves Shiz to do animal, animal activism. <laughs> There's an eyes wide shut orgy scene with some of her colleagues for some reason, and then years pass. Fiero, one of said colleagues, is back in town after the time skip and runs into Alphaba, who is trying to hide herself since she's taken to doing some radical activism, despite being a uniquely green person. Fiero is the ruler of another part of Oz and is married to Sarima, whom he was promised to when they were children. He's not really into all that, but likes Alphaba's revolutionary activities, and Alphaba has been pretty isolated due to the being in hiding thing, so they have an affair about it. One night, Alphaba has a secret mission that she refuses to tell Fiero about, so he tails her. Alphaba doesn't know much about it either until she gets to the location she was instructed to go to and finds Madame Morrible, her target. She is foiled by a convenient parade of children and is unable to take the shot or whatever she was supposed to do to murder Morrible. Fiero rushes back to Alphaba's apartment and is caught by agents of the state who murder him, presumably. Alphaba is devastated and goes to a convent for nine years. I guess she was, I don't know, comatose, dissociated for some of that period because she remembers barely anything about her time at the convent, including the birth of her son, up until they ask her to leave for some reason. I don't know. She's got to take her son Lear with her on a journey to go tell Sarima, Fiero's wife, that she's sorry she had sex with him and was probably the reason he was murdered. On the way, she ignores Lear and treats him as if he's meaningless to her since she doesn't remember giving birth to him, apparently. 
An elephant princess gives Elphaba a blessing. They reach Kiamo Ko, where Sarima lives, which is a castle where she is with her sisters. Sarima refuses to hear Elphaba say anything about Fiero, but invites her to stay indefinitely. So Elphaba camps out until Sarima is ready to be properly cuffed or whatever. One of Sarima's kids treats Lear like shit, going so far as to nearly drown him in a well. Elphaba kills him by unconsciously enchanting an icicle in a way that makes it fall right as the kid is walking by. Meanwhile, the political climate in Oz has gotten pretty fraught. Animals are completely subjugated by the Wizard of Oz. Nessa Rose now rules Munchkinland, which has seceded. One day, soldiers of the wizard show up at Kiyama Ko, and Alphabet doesn't trust them. She finds a broom with the power of flight and fucks off back to Munchkinland to meet with Nessa and her family. Nessa is viewed as a tyrant due to her religious zealotry by her citizens, and Elphaba turns down an offer from their father to take over instead. She returns to Kiyamako to find the soldiers who have taken Sarima and the family away. She spends years trying to track them down to no avail. After another time skip, the movie happens. Dorothy lands on Nessa Rose with a house and kills her. Galinda, now Glinda, shows up and glues Nessa Rose's magical balance shoes to Dorothy's feet for reasons. Elphaba is pissed since she is worried that the Wizard of Oz will take the shoes from Dorothy and be able to control Munchkinland with them since they are a symbol of power to Munchkinlanders so they'd have to follow the person with the shoes? I don't know. Even though they hated Nessa Rose? Eh? Eh. She also hears Madame Morrible is still alive, but when she shows up to confront Morrible, she had actually died seconds before Elphaba came into the room, so she decides to crush her skull anyway and call it a murder and then go have dinner with another old college pal she hated and confessed to it. The dinner guests all think that's cool or something and just roll with it. Later, Elphaba does some horrible experiments on animals and animals in order to protect herself and send them after Dorothy, which fails. By this point, Elphaba has been on a meth bender for a bit and it only gets worse. Dorothy eventually shows up and explains her predicament to Elphaba, but Elphaba accidentally sets her clothes on fire, so Dorothy throws a bucket of water on her to put her out. But Elphaba is allergic to water, like in the movie, for reasons, so she dies. Oz is sad because he realized she was his daughter, I guess, so he leaves Oz forever? Oh, and Mother Yakul is the malevolent, ancient, otherworldly horror who created the potion that Elphaba's mom drank that made her green for reasons, took care of her when she was comatose at the nunnery, and made a variety of decisions that led to all of the things happening in this book, all to protect the grimoire, which Oz brought from the other world, which is our reality, and Elphaba finds later on and hides. The end. Are you confused too? We sure are. <laughs> Oh, boy. It's so interesting. Hearing you read that summary, I realized that there are things that I, A, missed, and B, understood pretty differently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, there's some things that even I was like, I'm not unsure about your interpretation, Paris, but I feel like we all landed generally, because there was the whole meth potion thing okay. that I completely missed. Yeah, there's a point really late in the book where Elphaba finds this potion in the grimoire and she doesn't sleep for weeks and just keeps taking the potion. I was like, she's fucking doing speed. So she, by the end of the book, she's just like so hyped on speed and her own paranoia that it ends up killing her. Yeah. <laughs> so, I get that now. Yeah. Yeah. So that happens. <laughs> yeah. So, what? Yeah. Did we both not catch yeah, the potion? I think we both didn't quite catch that. <laughs> that's One okay. thing that I would like to add, if that's all right, yeah, is that there, um, in the character list and in the summary, there are a couple people missing. And I think that's sort of fitting because they are sort of written off because classism mm. throughout the book. And those people are Nanny, who basically <gasps> right. raises both Elphaba and Nessa Rose. 
and Shell. And Shell. Yeah. And had raised their mom, Melina, before them. Right. True. True. Um, And she's kind of an interesting character. Yeah, that's fair. We did forget Nanny. Can't forget Nanny. Because she fucking shows up at the end for no reason, too. So. Yeah. Nanny keeps coming around everywhere. I feel like mm-hmm. in some ways she's not exactly a conscience, but definitely like sort of a memory holder for Alphaba, sort mm-hmm. of in the way she shows up, sort of Fair. like her money, like who you are and sort of in some ways like a reality check. Yeah. Um, and she serves that function for Melina too when Alphaba is born, sort of showing up and you know, helping That's her true. deal with um, sort of her postpartum depression, her mm-hmm. unique postpartum depression. Yes. And then there's Ama Clutch, who is Galinda's hired um, chaperone person. Yeah. Um, who is murdered for witnessing the murder of Dr. Dillamond. Right, right. Forgot there was a double murder there. Sorry, there's so much stuff in this book. Yeah, there's a lot to pack in. I kind of had to choose what to include based on what seemed relevant to what people... And I just decided... That's me being classist. That's what that is. Good. Classist and misogynist. Great way to start off the episode. I feel great about this already. (laughs) No, no, no. I mean, to be be fair to Chris, I mean, it was a lot to remember. And um, Mm -hmm. no, that's a good point, though. yeah, Ama Clutch does get caught up in that murder, but beyond that, uh... yeah, that's true. I guess I just remember really noticing how I feel like the author went out of his way to like emphasize that she didn't matter. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and, that's true. He like, did. That felt he did. Yeah, not great. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. So early. It's worth putting up. Okay. So. So. Like we said before, this is going to be part one of our discussion. Uh, There is going to be a cut point about midway through the plot discussion. Basically, after Fierro affair is where we're going to make a little division here. So be that just was the most convenient pre and post Fierro fucking was the (laughs) the demarcation line. So you're hearing this in part one, and then uh, we will just jump into part two for the part two of the episode. So, let's begin with the nice, easy, technical construction. Hey! This seems to be the thing that we can gloss over for the most part, because, hey, it's it's a competently put-together novel in terms of sentences, sentencing, and format formatting. Right, right. So, like, again... We say we've been saying this a lot with this rubric that we're still workshopping here. Things are going to get weird for a little bit. But this should be an easy point for most books to score. But we have to put it out here just in case. Because sometimes, sometimes people just have fun ideas about how sentences should be structured and where periods go and where commas should be and how to format chapters and whatnot. This one was at least, yeah, I didn't, I don't know about either of you, but I didn't pick up on any typos. The formatting was pretty normal. Um, punctuation. I audio booked. <laughs> yeah. So to be fair, the the Good Witch of the Northeast here read this entire novel once before, tried to read it again, and then decided she needed a change of pace. So then audio booked. So, <laughs> so she has read it in full. Um, but yeah, uh, I don't know. I'm yeah. The only thing I mean, this is technically an editing point, which we'll get into. But this was professionally edited in terms of you know construction, but really wish someone had taken first an axe and then a scalpel to the plot. Um, so it was not, I don't think this was edited for content as no. much as it should have been. Really needs a heavy content edit for like, for like coherence and stuff. But uh, that's the only 
thing, but yeah, I, it was fine. Give it a one for technical. Yeah, just put I, it up on the board. <laughs> start done. start fine. good. Try to be reasonable here. Okay, so why don't we just head right into a little bit of a warm-up with Moment to Moment, which we're going to do here with some examples from the writing before we start really diving into taking this thing apart. (laughs) Yeah, so we're going to talk about prose quality and dialogue, and in this section we're going to just read some examples and talk about things we liked and didn't like about it. Um, I don't know, Chris, you've got the first note here. I'll let you take that. I thought there were some moments where there was a glimmer of something that could have been um, just a handful of turns of phrase that I enjoyed and pointed to the fact that if this was workshopped quite a bit more, we could have had something uh, worth reading. Okay, let's just you know give up the ghost here in terms of our opinion of this book is a low rating. <laughs> we'll get to that. Um, so a good example, a really quick good example that's not, you know, just off the top of my head, there was a segment where something or like I think it was a physical landscape was described as being wide as remorse, Yes, which was, was a really uh, turn of phrase <laughs> right there when I hit that out. This was midway through the book by which I had already started experiencing pain. And like there was this one moment there where I was like, oh, that's actually OK. Maybe you can pull it out here. But so stuff like that. Yeah, I heard I, when I read that wide is remorse, I also took a note on it. And then in my mind, I was hearing uh, the Patrick Walker, who does the span uh, warning and also 40 watt sun. And it just sounded like a lyric that he would write. And mm. that stuff is like very deeply emotional. And I was like, oh, that really hits <laughs> like, mm. this one one morsel of goodness. At that point, the book was memorable. Um I can I can read another couple good lines if that's helpful. Sure. Hit us with some good bits before yeah. we start getting into the other stuff. Uh there's a little bit of there's a couple of lines relating to the characterization of, of Galinda or Glinda that I thought were particularly good. One of them is Galinda didn't often stop to consider whether she believed in what she said or not. The whole point of conversation was flow. I was like, ooh, that's a great char- that's a great way to characterize her. Um this is another one. Behind her starry-eyed love of herself, there is a mind struggling to work. It's another real good one to show that someone, you know, maybe knows better, but they they feel like they should care more about status and These stuff. These really tight little good. characterizations amidst a swamp of plot contrivance. <laughs> yeah, Which uh, is really interesting because I feel like those lines that you just read really, you get into Galinda's head in a way that I feel like you didn't with Elphaba, right, even though bizarre. we spend so much more time with her. So it's like, I don't know, in some ways, like even, you know, worse treatment of the Wicked Witch that we just like <laughs> don't get her at all. Well, yeah. And I mean, as you yourself, a good witch of the Northeast, I mean, that must be particularly bothersome, right? <laughs> like, you're, you know, you, you, you want more. You want more. More, more introspection. Mm-hmm. Um, here's a, This is another good line, unrelated, but it's when... Um, it's when one of the characters, Bach, I think, or Crope or Tibbet or I don't know, one of the fucking menagerie, one of the dwarves, I don't know, one of them is meeting someone for tea and he has this realization about, there's no other better way to put this, sort of about like ethnic cleansing and how it can be very sneaky. Uh, he walks into the tea room and he says... He realized, slowly but thoroughly, that this morning there were no animals taking their morning tea in here. No animals. 
and just how, you know, all of a sudden this persecuted group is just not having tea anymore. And that's something that a lot of people might miss. And uh, yeah, I don't know, just about how casually like oppression can happen. I thought that was a pretty good line. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Or slowly in a way that, you know, people don't necessarily notice immediately. And I think that's something that, yeah, is an important message is that you have to pay attention because people who are doing the oppressing count on that on people not noticing right and there's a similar like on a similar um line of thought there's a discussion where they're talking about sort of like the origin story of oz and something about <laughs> sentience coming from <laughs> enduring a river of piss from a goddess or something and Alphaba says baptism by piss said Alphaba. is that a subtle way both to explain the talents of animals and to denigrate them at the same time a good line about how you know about how the oppressor wants the oppressed to be both you know canny and conniving but also terrible and and stupid and you know there's so much promise at yes. the start of this, this right and we that's true. Th- i think that's why i want to structure the episode this way in which we're giving you sort of like these moments of grace to the author here to say that at the start for me i was sort of getting into the whole animal right uh, i'm sorry animals <laughs> Rights is, thing. Yeah, you say whatever you want. That, just so the listeners can know what I'm pronouncing a capital A. That's, I yeah, suppose, that's why I chose it. As opposed yeah. to the regular animals. Yeah. Uh, there were these moments where you thought, like, oh, this could actually be an interesting tale of, you know, I guess oppression and equal rights and like how you can't judge a wicked witch by her wicked cover cauldron. I don't know. I've, <laughs> yeah, right. By her hat. Uh, by, the her, by her large her pointy hat. But then it all just gets thrown away at the end. Yeah, like, for example, we have this other great line. It's a systematic marginalizing of populations, Glenda. That's what the wizard's all about. We were talking about your childhood, said Glenda. Well, that's it. That's all part of it. You can't divorce your particulars from politics, Elphaba said. And yeah, again, this is in the early, in the first 150 pages of the book. And I'm like, all right, well, this is going to be about, you know, oppression and maybe ethnic cleansing. I mean, it's heavy stuff, but that's cool. I'm into that. Yeah, and then there's the other. So similarly, like in the intro of the book and then throughout, you also get a lot of sexy, a lot of horny. Yeah, it does become very horny. (laughs) There's there's an undercurrent of horniness in this that I find confusing. I'm not sure that if we all felt that way. Oh, yeah. I was like pretty uncomfortable. People know us by now, Paris. So I figure we should ask our guest was the undercurrent of horny necessary, do you think? No. Did it add anything for you? No. I think <laughs> in some places it actively detracted. Yeah. Because um, there were, you know, descriptions of, you know, genitals that were truly excessive. Um, and, I mean, in some ways, like, there's one instance early on when Alphaba is born and they're describing her body and, like, in too much detail. And I think part of the purpose of that is to other her and make her, you know, sort of like dehumanize her in the way it's like she's green all over. Um, and I don't know. And I guess in that way, like it's effective in doing that and sort of dehumanizing her, but still like, I didn't think like needed to be done to that degree, particularly when like, there's so many other things about her that are, you know, described in really, 
like unkind ways like yeah. early on in the book. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. In fact, my note, I remember, I don't even have to look it up. I remember my note from page 50 of this book. It said 50 pages in, we've talked about a child's genitals three times. This book should be banned in Florida. I was like, there's <laughs> like, like, that's how excessive it was. And like you said, there's so many other reasons why she's othered. Why do we also have to talk about her genitals? They also try, the author also tries to use the general description to sort of try to humanize her a bit sometimes. Oh, I you think. want to read your favorite line? <laughs> or do you want see. me to do it for. You can read the line. Okay. Uh, so there's a bit. Yeah, go ahead, Paris. Read, you know what I'm talking yeah, about. It's so, in the Fiero affair yeah. moments where they're trying to like make it a little. Hey, the Wicked Witch also likes to have sex. Gets it on. Um, Fiero is watching Alphabo sleep and. He says, her pubic hair grew almost more purple than black in small spangled curls. And Chris had an incredible I, note I here. I mean, it just like, <laughs> I get we're trying to humanize the Wicked Witch of the West and like everyone's got pubic hair. And that's, you know, I, I, it's just weird that the author was like, maybe you will consider Alphaba to be more human when you realize she's got pubes. Yeah. Have you I, ever thought about the right. Wicked Witch of the West's pubes before? <laughs> right. I bet you didn't. And this this is the the problem with the undercurrent of horniness in this is that it's not that we're afraid of sex or we think sex is bad. It's that it appears at times where it does not belong. And I feel like there there also could have been a way to write that, like uh, someone lovingly gazing at their paramour as they sleep. And you could describe their hair. You could even describe their pubic hair. But maybe you don't want to say, oh, it's curly and purple. I don't know. It's just like not very... It doesn't give me anything. And all the other times the horniness pops up, it's at absolutely despicable times. There, For example, this is a little warning here. This is pretty gross. But there is a scene where someone has died and there are children who are viewing the body. And one of the kids gets aroused by the corpse. And it's like, why Specific is that happening? Specifically because the revival method here was to butter up the corpse and like give it a butter massage. Was that it? I, yes. I don't quite the, remember. the children were aroused by all the sisters at Kiamo Co. But buttering up a corpse. I just why do we need to So know? worse than you actually <laughs> described. Yes. Not just the corpse. You know, it's like it's a nice buttery Kerrygold salted <laughs> butter corpse that they have a particular thing for that I guess we had to know about these children. Right. Well, it was one of them. It's very specific. Like this child got a heart, got a half chub because this guy died, and it's like, what does this have to do with anything? And then similarly, his sister has a couple of descriptive moments. This child's sister, where she's running around outside, and there's this whole paragraph about how this like nine year old kid is like, oh, I could take off my shirt and let my little child nipples get some air, and like she almost has breasts but doesn't. And then the soldiers see her and kind of want to assault her, and it's like. None of this has any bearing on the plot. These children are very minor characters. Why are we wasting page count and word count on these weird digressions about genitals and sex and breasts and, like, fucking weird sexual assault stuff? Like, that's that's the problem with it in this book is that it's just everywhere where it doesn't need to be. I, I, it's just inexplicable to me. I feel like the stuff with that character who you just mentioned, like, belongs in like a coming of age story focused just on that character. Sure. But sort of like stuck in the middle of this book, Wicked, 
like you were saying, you know, just there was such thin world building. That yeah. It's like, you know, wish could use some of those words to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to, for something else. Yeah. Maybe not for a child's nipples in the sun. Thanks. Thanks, Gregory Maguire. I mean, and then, you know, this is a sort of talking about prose quality and similarly about sex, but this time about like the actual brief moments of sex in the book. Just the way the sex is described is some fucking bullshit. Like, for example, Fierro and Elphaba, you know, this is one of their, their tris. It says, He took some coconut oil and warmed it between his palms and slid his hands like leathery velvet animals on her small, responding breasts. The nipple stood, the color flushed. He was already fully dressed, but recklessly he pressed himself against her mildly resisting form. And then a, few, a sentence later... She took him deeper in than ever before. Like, even in Oz, we've got these shitty romance book tropes. Like, oh. I'm just God. watching the good witch's face slowly contort into <laughs> discomfort here. That's How? what we get up to here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just like. Wondering why I'm in the side room recording this shit all the time. But, like. How many times have we complained on the show about she took him deeper than before or he took him deeper? It's always like, it's such a stupid trope. I cannot believe it showed up in this book. I, it, like, all this stuff is here to just titillate a little bit, to make it a little bit more entertaining, a little bit more gritty, is really the purpose that's trying to be achieved here. Right. Even though it's overall not a gritty story or anything. So it's just there to add a little bit of spice on top that doesn't actually affect or... Help the dish. Yeah, we yeah, say. and like to add to this shit pile, there's like an eyes wide shut orgy scene with bestiality that happens. It's not described in detail, but like, what purpose did that serve? I guess there's a weird line when you have animals and animals, right? And perhaps I guess if you explored that in a way of like, where's the consent line for different types? I guess it's it's it yeah. could have maybe it could True. have been True. relevant to a tale about oppression or something maybe but it's absolutely not it's just thrown in there for the sake of like here's something weird i thought of now and then you it, have to deal with it and then it traumatizes a character who doesn't matter and then later <laughs> on they're like wow that guy was pretty fucked up after that eyes wide shut thing we went to and it's like yeah, yeah I, so am i actually yeah. <laughs> so okay and so i've thought about this a little bit you know wondering like you said about this sort of ham-fisted attempt at grittiness, you know, really just rolling a ham hock in some sand and throwing it at you. And I think maybe it's because this is Gregory Maguire's first adult book. Everything he had written before this was technically, uh, I think, children's literature or YA. And so I feel like he just really swung too hard in one direction and, like, didn't really have his bearings yet on what should go in here. Still, he was an adult man when he wrote this. Like, I'm not making any excuses, but I am trying to understand why this happened, and maybe that's part of it? We're trying to give some grace here, I think, about it. Um, yeah, that's mostly what I have to say about that, unless you would like to read any other examples. There's actually one particular moment, if you can find it, Paris, where it is a bit of dialogue that Elphaba says before she basically throws herself in Fierro's arms and their affair begins. Truly, do you know the bit that I'm talking about? I believe oh. I highlighted it. Oh, the Rings of Power quote? I don't think it's that. Not that one, but there's <laughs> okay. another one. Okay. The You're Good one? I, is that it? No. no? There, there's, okay. Let me see if I can find it. In the well, dark. while you're looking for that, I'm going to read another unnecessary horniness line. 
Go ahead. This dude can't help but even make, like, the outside sexual. There's a line that says, They couldn't help but feel the unsettling eroticism of the landscape. Mm. What? <laughs> what the, was sexy? Mountains, I think the mountains well, are supposed to be... Did you remember the rest of the description? No. Oh. The rest of that paragraph <laughs> goes that the mountains were shaped such that when you entered a pass, it looked like it was, like, between... A woman's legs. But that's most landscapes. <laughs> like Ooh. a lot of, like this dude's just finding genitals everywhere. Everything's so gendered and genitalia in yeah. this book. Oh, Lord. Okay. I found the passage Great. that I would like to read. Okay. So this is Elphaba, you know, finally giving in to her lust for Fierro. Even I though suppose. they've known each other for two seconds and their affair lasts for two months. Continue. <laughs> well, I mean, she knew him in, in at Shiz up in college. Barely. Barely. Yeah, barely. <laughs> no, she cried. No, no, I'm not a harem. I'm not a woman. I'm not a person. No. But her arms wheeled of their own accord like windmill sails, like those magic antlers, not to kill him, but to pin him with love and to mount him against the wall. I'm very confused as to what I'm not a harem, I'm not a woman, I'm not a person no means in this context. Yeah, I also highlighted Does that. Does anyone have any idea? confusion point. I mean, <laughs> just like the blank <laughs> silence. Crickets. I will leave that in. I'm not no, editing I'm just that. trying to remember. I think the conversation before that had been like talking about Alphaba's role in the animal resistance movement. Mm -hmm. And Fiero had like made a comment of like, oh no, sorry, that's a totally different part. I, but like, but her selfhood in relation to the movement was a topic of conversation mm -hmm. for them mm -hmm. um and i think also her selfhood as a person who is green and like sort of like always outside i think was something that they like talked about a lot and so i think part of like i don't know sort of like rejecting or i don't know having a hard time with the she identity she doesn't want to person, yeah. give in to her personal desires, mm -hmm, and that's right. why she's not a person. Well, she I also guess... doesn't want to be a she doesn't want to be part of a harem. She's saying she doesn't want to be because, like in his culture, they it seems like harems are a thing. I guess what I'm confused is with is I'm not a harem. Yeah, as if yeah. Alphaba <sighs> is the entire like multiple women. Yeah, shouldn't she's like I'm no. not part of a harem or I'm not right. I agree. The passage was inelegant too, like talking about somebody in this very serious moment being like the wacky, wavy, inflatable arm tube man was very <laughs> weird. odd. Very weird. Yeah, it made me. It took like so much of this book. It really took me out of a serious moment because the description was so like odd or silly mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. inappropriate. Like that mm -hmm. happened a lot. A lot. Yeah, so great, great example for that. Um, I think the only other thing I want to talk about in the dialogue is there. there's also an undercurrent in this of weird... I mean, I know this is a made-up world, but there's definitely some strange racism in terms of indigenous folks, and the way that indigenous people are described and talked about is disgusting, I think. For example, there's a passage that sounded so much to me like the... Sorry to even have to say this, but it's what they're called, like the mud people stuff from Sort of Truth. Oh, yeah. Great here. callback on like, that one. Um, you know, just really uh, stereotypical othering language. This is the passage. 
A thousand humans with their poached salmon skin, their moistly protruding eyes, but sensitive in lowered gazes to avoid being met, their handsome, generous noses and big buttocks and wide rolling hips, men and women alike. And there's, I don't know, in that passage, it's like, why do we have to do this? Especially when, in uh, sorry, I should say they're talking about quadlings. That's the group of people who live in quadling country and they're sort of the indigenous, I think, of the of the land. And then, you know, whenever Melina is thinking about Turtleheart, who is a quadling, who she and her husband are having a thruple with, uh, or are in a thruple with. Yeah, in a thruple, not having a thruple. That I is, guess a, that is the wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, she talks about how she feels sort of like delivered and absolved. Because mm. Turtleheart fucks her. And mm-hmm. I'm like, God, fuck it. I was so like, ugh. You know, and in some ways, right, you're like, okay. We've talked about this before in terms of like, just because you're presenting something in a book doesn't mean like that's what the author's trying to get across. But there's never any like, def- there's very little defense of indigenous people in this. Elphaba's the only one who's like, hey, remember when we killed them all for their minds? That was bad. And, and like, but the rest of the book is just sort of this weird undercurrent of that i don't know i just i didn't love it and it didn't feel as though again it didn't feel like it was setting it up to tear it down it just sort of felt like it was setting it there and i wanted more out of that especially if we're having this whole other sideline discussion about oppression and you know ethnic cleansing with the animals animals stuff but then the quadlings are just sort of eh, it just stuck out to me as another thing about this book that I did not like. Did not like. Okay. I agree with that. Mm. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, is this our ending from moment to moment? Could we talk about the dialogue a little bit? Yeah, you got it. Because the way that everyone talks, I don't know, felt sort of like it was out of a movie from the 40s. Like where the dialogue is like, do people really talk like this? <laughs> and like they use terms of endearment that feel inappropriate Mm -hmm. and sort of stilted and stiff and it's just yeah really confusing like who are you you really talk to your friends like this yeah oh we should we should also talk about the ableism real quick Mm. uh yes let's let's do your thing first um we don't have to stand dialogue if nobody else no no, no. i just want to say that it's not good oh i agree i think the dialogue for me, At some points, it's just so weird. It had that feel of you're trying to be half fantasy or po- like in the way like not Game of Thronesy, but you know what I mean? Like in mm. fantasy novels, they just have this sort of like it's how they talked in the medieval times. You said more 40s, which is a little bit more on point, but it's that kind of thing. But then you have these moments of more modern language. I don't know. This might be a weird thing, but what stuck out to me most was early on in the story when Nanny is there. Um, talking to Melina, you know, she's going on and on about how Melina is frolicking about and, you know, doing as she pleases. And yeah, she, fucking everybody. Yeah. She straight up calls her a slut for daring to look inside a tavern window. And I don't know, maybe slut is something that's been around for quite a while, yeah. but it struck me as strikingly just like yeah. more modern in flavor. And that's yeah. a very weird particular example I know, but... No. No, it's it's right, and I and I thought about that a lot too. Like, why does the dialogue feel kind of funny? And it's sort of got this weird, like, forties older style language. And then you're talking about sort of the more modern uh, slang and stuff, like slut and fuck and blah blah blah. And the only 
thing I could come up with <laughs> that made any sense is, to me, this is clearly the land of Oz. This world is clearly a parallel universe to our reality here on Earth. And we are taught that, you know, the, I guess, the veil between our worlds can be crossed because the Wizard of Oz comes from our world, which is made very explicit in the book. Uh, because it turns out the Wizard of Oz is an Irish guy who was having trouble with racism against the Irish, and he was like, fuck this, I'm going to another plane of existence. You know, fucking white supremacy, making other people switch into different planes of existence since 1400. I just So he pieced out because of that, found this grimoire that allowed him to do some kind of a spell that took him to the world, the realm of Oz. Um, so that's the only thing I could think of is like there's clearly some cross-pollination and maybe just some of the dialogue came over, but it's unclear. I don't know. I'm really trying here. Mm-hmm. Then you have like Frex, you know, uh, Alphaba's dad, who is very Salem witch trials preacher in his yeah, dialogue yeah. against the slightly more modernized, like, how dare you slatinly look in a window, you slut, <laughs> kind of thing. Like even in that first section kind of being juxtaposed against each other yeah. makes it feel weird. And then you got phrases like, well, this is a fine kettle of fish. Yes, yeah, something that I should say more of, honestly. Yeah. That's another turn of phrase I actually appreciate. That one I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, the dialogue is... It's hard to it's describe fine. and point out specific examples. I think it, it's a feel thing, right? As you're going through it. So I don't know if this is like the best example... But it just feels like, I don't know, to me it does like illustrate the way that the dialogue just feels sort of like overworked. Yeah, yeah, sure. So there's a scene where, so Galinda is basically part of a mean girl clique. Right, thank you. And one of them plays a trick on Galinda by inviting Elphaba to come to like the summer cabin that they're renting. Yet another part of the book that just didn't fucking matter. <laughs> um, and so basically to like embarrass Galinda and Alphaba, mm-hmm. and she poses as Galinda to invite Alphaba. But anyway, so it's just so Alphaba says, "You mean you didn't invite me to visit here?" And then Galinda says, "Oh dear, no, I did not." In her anger, she was beginning to regain some control, even though Bach guessed damage had been done for good. My darling Miss Alphaba, I wouldn't have dreamed of exposing you to such thoughtless cruelties as these girls perpetrate on each other and on me for sheer amusement. Besides, you have no place in a setting like this. And it's just like. What? I think it's because Glinda's trying to be fancy and upper crust, even though sure. she's kind of only like upper middle mm-hmm. class and she wants to be like really, really mm-hmm. high class. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it is odd. I don't know. And I guess she does come from a different like state or whatever. But mm-hmm. I similarly had trouble identifying with any of the characters because they, they really seemed like characters and not people. Like I really could not mm-hmm. get a grasp on anybody's humanity in this. It was really... Yeah, silly. Except for Bach. Bach. Yeah, Bach was fine. That's true. Except when he came back at the end for no reason and it was terrible. Right. It was really <laughs> weird. Except for that part. Oh. Okay. Uh, are we done with moment to moment? Well, uh, one last stupid thing. Um, absolutely not the author's fault at all, but reading this in the year, year of our Dark Lord 2023 and 2024... Uh, the constant haranguing about the evils of TikTok did make me laugh constantly. <laughs> Frexmar just thinks they'd be on them damn phones so much. They're not paying attention to his preaching. There, Yeah, there is this like, 
is what is the is it called the TikTok religion? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So okay, obviously Gregory Maguire could have had no idea that TikTok was going to be a thing when he wrote this book 25, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, so take TikTok happens in the book, and they're talking about all oh, these damn kids and their TikTok, and it's mm-hmm. just and this is another thing that totally took me out of the book and made me laugh so hard yeah, but it was not at all the uh, not like, as far no way that it, have... we could it could just a funny little tidbit that everyone's going off about all this new tiktok business <laughs> that people are into those damn kids and they're they're wanting of pleasure and tiktoking all the time and they're and... murderous tiktok mm-hmm. butlers yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so doing was... all these murder challenges like murder your professor challenge oh, i know <laughs> Yeah, it it's uh so anyway, again, not possible to have foreseen this, but it was something that contributed to my moment to moment enjoyment or lack thereof because I was just jarred out of the book and into the present whenever mm-hmm. whenever that happened. Mm-hmm. Okay. Having said that, um moment to moment, or how are we going to score that one? Negative one, zero, or mm. one, would you say? Mm. It's, it's a negative one. So, to me. Yeah, negative one. Yeah, it's, it's a negative one. Because uh, as we said, you just keep getting drawn out of it very frequently yeah. to in a way that just makes you feel like you're stumbling over yourself trying to figure out like the tone a lot of the time. Okay, I'm comfortable with scoring it on a negative one there. So we've already erased the goodwill from the technical construction that we right. had there. This is the process. Okay, so now we're. Uh, in some of our rubric workshopping, and especially with how this book kind of broke the whole thing wide open with it, um, we are not going to do separate plot coherence and Terriblo's presence things here. Since I feel as we, we felt as if the presence was just undeniable, and honestly, we kind of end up covering the same things in both uh, sections sometimes. You will probably be confused, listener, when in future episodes after this, we're still doing that because we're recording this after a bunch of other episodes. So we're still, you know, on the fly workshopping of the rubric here <laughs> that you will find. Uh, we'll get, we'll find our rhythm eventually, I think. I think, I think we just got to go back to the tried and true. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> it's all right. this book really tested my rubric in a way that smashed it wide open. I yeah, think. it really, we really... So I suppose on to Terriblo's presence. Undeniable. Undeniable Undeniable. presence because boy, oh boy, were we messaging back and forth quite a bit about this, uh, Paris. And I have to say to the good witch here, fantastic recommendation because I walked into this book thinking like, how bad could it be? It's an interesting topic. There was a successful musical about it. It can't really be that wild. And And yet... And the further I dove into this book, the more and more that I that I tried to unravel, I felt like I was a contractor getting called into a house to like, check. there's a weird rattling in the walls. Could you check that out for me? And then you go in there and it's like, oh, there, there's like a, a, a pipe here that's loose. Why is that loose? And then you try to like tighten it, but that's connected to a series of like the electrical cabling. Like, yes. Why is that here? Okay, let's try to undo that. And then like within the electrical cabling is a rat king just like tied up in all of it. And you're like, okay, we might need to get the exterminator out here now. And then after, okay, you get the exterminator out here and he tries to undo the rat king. He's like, well, actually there's a hole. There's a giant hole in the insulation over here. You're going to need to cover that up. And then all of a sudden you're getting like, you might as well just build this whole house from the ground up at that point. That is how this felt. I just kept like thinking hard about it and trying to 
have it stand up on itself, it kept falling apart. Chris, it, it's just the MBTA New England house again. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, <laughs> it's the MBTA house. Everything just keeps not supporting the other thing. And like you thought, well, I thought this stud should go here, but then that's connected to like the basement sub pump somehow. So if I remove that, then all the water will go up into the walls. And then we won't have a house anymore. So what's the point of even living on this? By the way, the earth itself is on mud. Yeah. And we can't actually build anything here. This was illegally. I'm laughing so hard because it just sounds like my house, which we already established in a previous episode with an MBTA house. Because it's like, it's true. It, it does feel like this is being held together by fucking marshmallow at a certain angle, like on a, partic- a day with a particular temperature. Like it's real. It's real. Uh. Tenuous. So, and I think as we've sort of touched on, like I think there are a lot of interesting elements, mm-hmm. but none of them are developed in a like particularly coherent way. Yeah, and I don't know. I'm having an argument with myself about like, okay, so the author's just doing a lot of show don't tell, um, which I respect, you yes, know, and world up. building, like show and telling is good, but it's like there's too much. Like you kind of need to. I wish you would tell us just like a little bit more. Or just show us less. There's so many things we're shown that mm-hmm. I didn't want to see, man. Like yeah. from the eyes wide shut like scene to the hair. purple pubic hair to the the would summer cottage escapade. Honestly, there's so much of this book I would cut, and I feel like it would be so much better. Um, Thus, why we are splitting this into two. Yeah. So to be clear, we're going to talk about sort of the first half of the book up until a. About that Fiero affair mm-hmm. is over and done with, that's and that's split. where we will jump into part two of the plot here. Okay, so just starting off here. Um, I just wanted to say sort of what, uh, Chris, you were saying, like, oh, how, you know, how bad could it be? Like, it has sort of this interesting idea. And, like, similarly, I personally, I love fairy tales, so I was very interested to see a reworking of sort of a, a fairy tale that's become popular, right, in the 20th century, I'd say. And I, you know, I didn't, I mean, truth be told, I thought, I've never seen the musical, but I've seen clips and I've heard the songs and I didn't like it. It seemed really kind of cheesy and lame to me. I think I also just grew up at a time where everyone was singing Defying Gravity all the time and it made me hate it. And I did theater <laughs> as a as a kid at the time. I'm staying so, grounded. Fuck all you people. I'm on the, <laughs> feet on the ground down to earth. Yeah, I'm fuck that. It. Fuck that. Leave leave flight to birds and airplanes. Um, and yeah, so maybe maybe I just had sort of a I was like, all right, you already sort of have a degree of dislike about this, but you know, just experience the book for what it is. And I wasn't expecting the book to be so different from what I understood the musical to be. Mm-hmm. Even not having seen it, but you know, hearing some of the songs, seeing clips, reading a brief summary, I was like what do these two things have to do with each other? It seems like the people who wrote the musical literally paid Maguire for character names and setting and then just made an entirely different story. So do they include the turtle heart stuff in the musical? There's no way they were like, <laughs> Melina and Frex had trouble. Like, that was not a line or number I remember. So I guess, you know what? That's the intro to the plot. So let's just start a little bit there yeah, with, I, like, the needless... Like that, I, I get that we're setting up Alphaba's family and they're referenced later. We're like, you need to know who Frex is when they come back into the story. When when Alphaba comes back and Nessa Rose turns into a religious zealot tyrant mm-hmm. or what have. But do we really need to? Sp- 
spool out so much about like Melina's behavior. No. And how she's uh she likes to get down, which is fine. The, I mean, I do like it's pretty clear that Alphaba was like neglected and used by her father as a tool for converting people in Quadling Country. And you don't get into so much of that detail in the beginning, but you definitely see like, you know, the shock and open dislike that her, particularly her mom, I think her, her dad's like a little bit more supportive of her, but he definitely sees, you know, her green skin as like a curse brought about by his not being devout enough. And so like, there is a little bit of a setup for like, is some of the so-called wickedness mm-hmm. sort of coming from like early childhood. Yeah trauma and um but even that is like done in a way where i don't know where it takes so much to get around to it like get to the fucking point mcguire i didn't need 50 pages about this the whole melina and turtle heart thing to be so dug into right if you want to set it up this section as a way to explain away a little bit of how alphaba is feeling othered Mm -hmm. by the time she's grown uh, why include such so many pages about how Melina was really into Turtle Heart? The only, yeah, the so, and even that, like, the only reason we even get so much into Melina wanting to be down is because it makes the Wizard of Oz her dad at the end. And that doesn't even matter. It's just like he just wants to, like, get that in there. And why? <laughs> it's needless. I I agree. I agree with, you know, Wicked Witch of the North, or Good Witch of the North, not Wicked. I agree with the Good Witch of the Northeast here. But what is wickedness, Paris? Yeah. yeah. I feel like that is the, <laughs> supposedly the whole point of this book, and yet I feel none the wiser. Yeah, and yet I could not define it myself. But you, listen, we really got to know exactly you know what? No, how, no. how much Melina gets down. I like, got it. I know what wickedness is. It's getting addicted to earth crystal meth and sewing wings onto animals while they're still conscious. Okay, that's, yeah. That's it end. seems pretty wicked about yeah, that. But, it's pretty bad. But So I guess the point I'm trying to make about this intro about what we didn't need to include is how Melina is I'm trying to find the right words for this promiscuous I suppose like just her promiscuity doesn't have to play such a large role into everything for the reasons that we've already stated especially since when it is brought in later as a setup for and that's why the wizard was Alphaba's father like you Who don't cares? really have to like oh yeah. because Melina was loose with it with her in her morals which that's not you know the judgment that yeah. I'm trying to make here it just seems to be the judgment the book is trying to make. And, well, and the other thing is like, I really I don't know this is just maybe a me thing, but why does it all have to be in chronological order? Why couldn't we have had Alphaba reflect back to her childhood to get those points of mm-hmm. you know childhood trauma that you've so correctly surfaced as very important to her character? Like to me. I, I, and I feel like if we did that, we'd also get maybe some more introspection on Elphaba's part yes. and make us care more about it. Like, I would rather have a flashback to, like, a couple pages of her mom and dad at appropriate points that gave us the gravity of that neglect and her dad using her as a tool to convert people and all that. But instead, we have to sit through 
70 pages of our family history and it's like god this is such an inefficient way to do this and nanny and melina arguing oh, back nanny, and forth yeah. about like what should be done with alphaba and like well i saw you staring in that window that bar window oh, you slut bit, like you I, know alphaba bit a guy's finger off and she had pointy teeth and like what does that matter like i don't <laughs> you know she eventually grows out of her teeth and stops biting people by the way children regular earth children bite people sure they don't have pointy teeth so less damage but like Oh, there's this, all this weird Needless stuff. Needless extra detail extra that othering. actually doesn't yeah. have to be there, no. which is really the theme of this whole story here. Right. So I feel like we have, in the moment to moment, have gone over like the needless oversexuality yeah, with like have. the eyes wide shut scene and the turtle heart thing. So that's the main point we wanted to make in terms of how that appears in the plot. I have one last okay. thing. Okay. So we just briefly told you about the this. Ha ha ha, last surprise. Like, surprise, the Wizard of Oz was also Elphaba's dad. Ha ha, but you didn't see that coming. And then, like, we also get at the, we don't find out until the very end, like, surprise, Turtle Heart's also fucking Frex. And you're like, why? Why does he have to be (laughs) fucking we knew that from the beginning. Yeah, it was hinted at, but it was hinted at. But I think, I think if for people who had to slog through this nonsense and forget everything like we did, there was a big old reminder at the end and it's like I didn't pick why it up. I actually didn't pick it up until the very end right there yeah I so think... interesting I thought it was extremely obvious oh, at the very see, beginning I didn't think it was I thought it I was like is that what's happening no but this is another thing like why 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 did we need Turtle Heart to be banging both the parents what did it do I mean I know I guess then it contributes to the questionable parentage of Nessa Rose and Shell but that doesn't have any bearing on the plot or anything is this another rumination on the nature of wickedness because you're supposed to maybe cast Melina as neglectful and she cares more about getting off than her children? And Frex is sort of cast a little bit as like the father that actually cares a little bit, even though he uses Elphaba too. So if they're both having sex with Turtle Heart, they're like equally in that. So like who's really the one that's being like... Like it's it's a way to make Melina seem less bad for doing that, which is a theme that I see happening in this book. Like when Alphaba shows up to Madame Morrible's deathbed, I suppose, and you didn't have to have Madame Morrible dead right there, especially if you're going to have this whole thing with Alphaba being like, well, I murdered her when you really didn't. So it's talk about a part of the book that didn't need to be there. It's like trying to soften the blow on a lot of these things so that. These ruminations we get on, like, what is really good? Who's really, like, the the gray area? It's, like, almost too graying of things where you're not really giving. No one's really standing too far out in the area of, like, I'm doing this for this reason. Or, like, Mm -hmm. everyone just gets a little bit too much of this. I don't want to say grace, but just sort of, like, well, it wasn't really that bad. So, So this is sort of, like, another argument that I was having with myself while reading it of, like, this is too gray. What is the point? But then also maybe that is the point, right? Like where it's, I mean, I feel like people IRL are like often having really ambiguous motivations for doing things and sort of this grand theory of like good versus evil as sort of like an inherent quality or sort of driver for action, like doesn't super exist. So like, in some ways that sort of worked or sort of when I thought about it was like, okay, all right. Like I can see what you're driving at in terms of even when we are trying to do things 
sort of with specific purpose like Elphaba and her activism, like it might not be that effective. But then again, but it was still made for a very frustrating read because there was a lot of like talk about good and evil that didn't really go anywhere and felt preachy and like not totally thought through and like delivered in a really weird way. Yeah. We don't get Frex's monologuing or internal conflict about it. He's just kind of like, and I was having sex with Turtle Heart too, so your mom actually wasn't that bad, is how I feel like it lands. Yeah. And then, like we've mentioned before, Alphaba doesn't get a lot of rumination on that either. It is dropped there, and then we move on. But again, like, what was the point of that? I just feel like the book would not be... It wouldn't have changed. Like, why include these things? These, like, trysts and stuff. They just don't, mm-hmm. they don't seem to really bolster even the stuff you're talking about with, yeah. like, good and evil. And, oh, maybe everybody gets a pass, really, because we're all fucked up. Like, yeah, we already know Gregory Maguire. We know. <laughs> I don't, like, I don't I think, do. is anyone out here really being, like, people are either good or evil? I don't know, man. Some people do, for sure, oh, think God. that black and white about oh, it. Oh, that's sad. And I do think, I do like a story where you are trying to explore the grayness of things. I just feel... That it is so muddled here. Agreed. Yeah, it's the wrong shade of gray. Yeah. And you're yeah. trying to make everyone seem sort of like, well, kind of this way, but not all the way that way. Mm-hmm. With, I don't know, it, it's very muddled. Okay, moving past that bit of like of like the intro here, can we sort of move into the Shiz University section of things where we're trying to set up the the like academic discussion of all the good parts that we mentioned in the moment to moment, but then ultimately never mattered and could have been exactly cut because right like it, it, so like the the, the Shiz University part I think is the perhaps shining light in the book of something yeah. that could have been more well explored of Alphaba and Glinda Galinda and all the all of their colleagues trying to talk out the othering of animals and who should be considered human and not. Yeah, but then we also have all this extra shit like the summer house nonsense and then like Bach really likes... Did Bach have a crush on Galinda? Galinda. Like, none of that stuff mattered. Why did it need to be there? It didn't... It didn't give any characterization that we didn't get anywhere else. It didn't add... It was just fucking needless filler. Like... I'm not here to read about kids in magic school. It's kids in magic school again. I hate kids in magic, kids in magic school. school. Very popular all the time. We were but in there. For... It's not magic school. I mean, it's sort of magic school. You yeah. can major in magic. That's true. It's optional magic school. I still hate it. I feel like I don't want to be there. I don't know. I feel like if there's a university where it's like engineering, business administration, sorcery, I'm gonna go to the sorcery. I can't school. believe there were people who didn't go to sorcery. <laughs> Bob studied agriculture. Yeah, <laughs> which is great. Love agriculture. Love it's it. just funny in this context. But like yeah. th- that's like the the cheating school, right? Like, do you want to have to not do the work? You can just make the plants grow with magic. Why why wouldn't everyone just do at least dabble and minor? Well, here's another thing about the inclusion of sorcery. We have, we are just freewheeling out here. We have no fucking clue how magic works. The magic system is never hinted at or spoken of. It's just like, I don't know, some people do sorcery. It's like, what? And then even Elphaba herself doesn't think she can do magic, but clearly has an innate ability to make things happen because she just fucking kills people a couple times, right? With but but I like gray he... area, right? She's not even consciously doing it. Right. It's kind of like, oh well she unconsciously made the icicle fall into that kid's Which is skull. another which is another like stupid fucking way 
Again, I really hate protagonists with inherent magical ability who doesn't have to work for it. I just, I really dislike that. Also, magic school, kids at magic school all together. Oh, it's just something that makes me nuts. I suppose this is also where we can bring up Madame Morrible's NDA spell, oh, as I've God. christened it. Because, and... so, Madame Morrible, as we said, brings Galinda, Alphaba, and Nessa Rose into her office after Dr. Dillamond is murdered. Yeah, at some point after. I don't quite remember the time period there. And she's like, oh, I, I've chosen the three of you to be representatives of your particular regions. You're for... going to be agents, you know, for the greater good. For the, nothing is said beyond that. Mm-hmm. She, and then, as they're all about to leave and Alphaba's voicing her consternation about it. She's like, but what if we don't want to be? And she's like, too bad. You have to be. I've cast the spell. You have no choice. And you also can't talk about it, which is why I christened it the NDA spell right there. (laughs) So this spell, quote unquote, gives Elphaba a little bit of anxiety because she walks out and be like, did I get magic? Am I really in control of myself or anything like that? But there's no effect later on except for Elphaba being paranoid about it. So how, how does that whole thing, are we supposed to assume that Madame Morble was just pulling one over on them? Well, no, because even later, she's like, don't her and Glenda have a very brief discussion about it towards the end of the book? Yeah. Or her and Nessa Rose, I yes. forget. She's she like, hey, both do. yeah, she's like, hey, do you fucking remember this? And they're like, yeah, kind of, but I don't know. And, and so, yeah. So, so that's like, how I feel. <laughs> I it's like another scene that I don't understand the inclusion of because it doesn't appear to have had any bearing on anything and uh, except for like you said adding to Alphaba's paranoia which then reaches a fever pitch and leads to her death later um but yeah like i i don't know i don't understand because we aren't led to believe that morable is pulling any strings i mean we find out later that she she is like an agent of the deep state essentially like working with oz to uh, I don't know, whatever Oz wanted to do, suppress Oppressed animals. animals for but for reasons. no reason. For no, re- we don't know why. Yeah. yeah. Which is also frustrating to me. I yeah. I want to understand why. Right. If you're going to have this Dude. whole thing about what's wicked and what's good and people's reasoning in gray areas, yes. why not dive into the wizard's motivation to do any of that? He's He is truly wicked, I suppose, but we don't get any meditation on that. Mm-hmm. And it's confusing, too, because like if his whole thing is suppressing like sentient speaking animals but like he's also into magic right like he's trying to get this magic book from Alphaba that is like an actual magic book there's a moment where I was really hoping that the grimoire was just like an engineering textbook from our world (laughs) and like not actually a magic (laughs) actually I think it's just like it's just it's actually just like a a a pharmacopoeia or like a pharmaceutical (laughs) handbook because she makes she does make a powerful drug out of it later um Yes, but so like he's but he is seeking magic and like so it's not like he's interested in suppressing the fantastical. Right, right. And it's also not about also doesn't really seem to be about land because he has other fights going on in terms of like geopolitics and like getting control of land Mm -hmm. because the the animals or whatever don't you know, they're spread out all over the territory. Yeah, yeah, they're not their own place. So I, I don't know. I mean, I guess. I mean, also knowing he's somebody who came to this realm for being oppressed for what he looks like is, I don't know, I guess that's how the fucking world turns, hurt though, isn't it? Hurt people hurt people. Yeah, Paris. right? Is that all we're supposed to know? You suppress the Irish, then they suppress the animals. I don't know. Like, that's what that's the direct through line I'm getting here, which is a weird one to pick up. I, 
yeah, I found myself wondering what the, why? I I don't know. Like, I, I want anything. Like, I don't know. Did a fucking lion kick him once and then he just was an <laughs> asshole forever about it? Like, I don't I can't know. Stand it. So speaking of animals, I think this is also another connection back into how we viewed a lot of the native characters as token. Oh, yeah. For the sure. animals themselves, even though we're supposed to, ex- you know, alphabet crusading for their rights and things. I feel like a lot of them are also tokenized in a way because we don't get a lot of in-depth animal characters. We kind of get Dr. Dillamond a little bit. Until he gets murdered. But he's always just <laughs> off in his office, like, doing research. And Elphaba's just like, I'm really into the research he's doing. Yeah, she and Crope and Tibbet become yes. his research assistant. Well, she's his and research. Bosh. Yeah, she's his research assistant officially. And then the other three kind of help her get stuff from the library because she can't go in the library because she's a woman. Yep. Right? And Dr. Yes. Dillamond can't go in because he's a goat. Yes, correct. Thank you. What I'm saying is all of the animal characters seem very cardboard cutout oh, in a yeah. way. We, we, there's what? Dr. Dillamond, the appearance of the cowardly lion as a cub. Why? Why did we need that? Just so we could say the cowardly lion was in this. Oh, and the tin man's in it, too. It's like if you already were going to write this whole series out, there's a, there's a whole book about the cowardly lion later in the series. You could have... Talked about those characters later. They did not need to be offhandedly mentioned just so you could say you included them. It's just... Oh, God. And if I could just go back to that point that you were making about, um, like, sort of token characters. I mean, I think the whole point is that, like, it's about Alphaba, right? Like, the like the sort of animal rights movement is about, like, how Alphaba gets to, like, sort of find self-worth for herself. And it's not about, sort of, like, the struggle, which... Ooh, fucked up! Yep, that's fucked up. Good point. Yeah, fair point on that one. I just wish that we had a animal character that was more fully realized. Agreed. That would have offered a little bit more depth to things. Yeah, I mean, we even get, we even get the like. I guess Turtle Heart is one of them too. There's so there's two token like magical granting of things indigenous animal characters or well no turtle heart is an animal but he's an indigenous character who kind of as melana says sort of grants her salvation through fucking which is yeah we've talked about that and then later on elphaba meets the elephant princess i forget princess her name. nestoya nestoya thank you princess nestoya who has sort of contorted and magicked herself into what looks like a human form, but then she sort of unfolds and she is truly an elephant hiding because she doesn't want people to know she's an elephant. And she sort of kind of tells Elphaba she's special and cool. And Mm -hmm. I just hated that so much. Like, cool, these Mm -hmm. animal characters and the indigenous characters are here just to, like, tell some people they're cool and good and fine and yeah. that sucks that's what i was driving at is that they're used to support Alphaba as being cool and good and the savior even though she's not that at all <laughs> no, at any point in the she's, story she's a horrible fuck up which i kind of appreciate to be fair yeah um, not like all protagonists have to be wonderful and amazing and like actually do that. it's just it just if if you want there to be some of that part of the story, I would appreciate a character from that group that is more fully realized. Yeah, and I just I don't want a vision quest. I don't want redemption through a sexual relationship with you know an oppressed character. I <sighs> fucked. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Moving to when perhaps my final point from the first half, but there perhaps is other things that you guys would like to bring up. 
is Galinda, her character here. I get that we are trying to juxtapose, you know, Elphaba, you took her as the Wicked Witch because that's what the movie said. And Galinda was the Good Witch because that's mm-hmm. what the movie said. And we're trying to cast Elphaba as the Crusader for equal rights. And, oh, the Good Witch that you thought was so good, turns out she's just a ditz. Just an empty-headed dumb dumb. And that seems to be her entire character is the pretty equals dumb trope. So if we're going to, again, explore these things in depth, just having Galinda be sort of airheaded most of the time, pretty much all of the time, because she disappears until the movie happens in the later half of the book, pretty much. Yeah, and it's and it's like she's, you know, like we talked about when we were giving examples of um, writing and dialogue. She is somebody who is maybe not inherently airheaded, but who embraces that mm. sort of you know, characterization of herself because she wants to be rich and well-liked and she cares more about clout and class than she does about anything else. Um, You know, she eventually marries some guy just so she can, like, buy cool dresses and stuff. Which is why she's, you know, which is the explanation for why she's wearing a big pink sparkly ball gown in the movie is because she's married to a rich guy and she can buy fancy dresses. And I was like, that's fucking dumb. Why do we need she that? It feels very shoehorned in here. I mean, a lot a of there's horns and shoes all over the place. I am. My body has been pierced. Yeah. <laughs> Coming back to the cover. Of, I know this is, again, from the musical and perhaps the musical did this a little bit better. I don't know. It does seem like we're going to be exploring the relationship between Alphaba and Galinda a little right, bit more right. as a way to ruminate upon the nature of good versus evil but Glinda just shows up to be ditzy about clothes and status and then leaves yeah i mean and you know you get a little bit of their back and forth at school but it it ultimately doesn't matter because they part ways and again they don't they don't come back together until way later and by then they're both well i guess Glinda's kind of the same person but elphaba is very different later on in the book and uh, yeah i don't know um Wasted opportunity again. Yeah, I think it's a wasted opportunity. I I feel like it. Obviously, you wanna you want to develop a history between Glinda and Alphaba, which makes yes. sense to me. So I totally. get I get them being roommates at school. That totally tracks. I'm not saying that's incoherent or stupid or anything. But I don't know. Yeah, they like they don't like each other at first, and then they kind of get to a place where they sort of like each other, and then they like kiss on a carriage, and then don't see each other for. 10, 15 years. I forget. what What's the time? I think the first jump is five years, and then there's another jump of seven years. Thank you. So 12 years. Okay. I think the theme of the first half of the book is a lot of setup that could have been promising. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of... There's all this stuff about the religions that everyone follows. Yeah. That, that, you know, and the, the Lurleen is a one goddess that people follow because we got to celebrate Lurleen Miss, another lazy little bit there. Yeah, we got to gotta have, have Life miss. Day in here. It doesn't you know? have to be Miss. Just call it Lurleen Day. It doesn't it, have to be a direct reference to also, something. Also, it doesn't have to have the same decorations as Christmas yeah. at all. Why is that a thing? And <laughs> gifts. God, this is another, oh, another thing that drove me nuts about this book is we're just going to take something and just, just change it a little bit. Give it a little change. It's like, no, it's a completely different realm of existence. You're sort of yeah. ruining the Which fantasy of Oz. Which is how we felt about, like, a lot of the witchy trappings. Yeah, yeah. Well, well I guess point. that more comes up in the second half, so maybe I'll sit on that for a okay. minute. Okay, but... all right, that's fine. So there is 
I do want to say that in the first half of the book, I was along for the ride. For this portion of the book, even up through like the Fiero affair, I was kind of like, okay, I see you're trying to set up a lot of these moving parts and threads about mm -hmm. the religions and good versus like you can't judge the Galinda and Alphaba as you thought of them in the movie cause because that's rewritten history by the victor or something like that. And the crusade for equal rights. So yeah, in yeah. the first part of the book, I was willing to set aside a lot of the over-sexualization and weird dialogue in the hopes that we would get some good ruminations on that later on before there's some kind of turn that casts Alphaba as like, oh, that's why people think she's wicked. Yeah, similarly, like I, the first 50 to 75 pages, I forget how long the Alphaba's childhood section is, but I was like so out. I was like, this is dragging, this sucks, I don't care. And then we got into school stuff, kids in magic school. And I was like, well, I don't really like kids in magic school. But like Chris just said, at least we're getting somewhere. We're talking about the oppressed and the oppressors. And, you know, the kids are starting to take sides and maybe develop their personalities a little bit. And I was like, okay, all right, I'll see where this goes. And I remember messaging Chris and being like, hey, it seemed like it kind of got somewhere. <sighs> then, then, then the Fiero affair happened and I was out again. And then I was out for the rest of the book. So... I don't think we have to talk too much about the affair part of it. That is the turning point, I feel, of the book. And it that's is. why we're doing the it division is. there. But the affair itself is largely uneventful in terms of what's going on there. I hate the affair. I hate that it's the turning point of the book. I hate its inclusion. I wish it had never happened because it felt so random because Alphaba and Fierro never have a connection early in the book. There is never even a T on a titular to their relationship. There is <laughs> there isn't even like a little squeak of a of a inkling. <laughs> Fierro is barely there. He's just like there is one scene when he first transfers or first comes to Shiz because he's from the Vincus, which is kind of far out. They're sort of uh, this is sort of a unfortunate casting of this group, but it seems like they're supposed to be sort of nomadic desert people that people are maybe a little racist against. Um, and Fiero has blue lines on his body. And diamonds. I'm... Huh? Blue diamonds. Diamonds, thank you. And I'm, and it seems they're like tattoos. those... Yeah, it seems like they're either tattoos or, you know, they're not paint. They're not something he can take off. And so he's sort of othered by characters a lot. He's also, I think he is described as having darker skin, I think. Mm -hmm. And there's a scene where he comes to school and the cowardly lion is there. <laughs> And I don't know, the, something goes wrong with a spell in class and he gets attacked by like a, a chair or something or a head, something, something comes to life and attacks him. And then the rest of the book, he's just very, he's just kind of, he's like, oh yeah, the whole gang was here and Fiero, but Elphaba and him almost have no interaction. So the affair really just comes through an open window and punches you in the face and you're like, holy, what the fuck? Like, why did this happen? I, I think I would like to yell about the affair briefly and just say, I why is that? Why is it here? It's here so he can put her in Kiyomoko in the castle where she finds the book. But couldn't she have just gone to visit her friend like later? Like she could have found out that, you know, uh, I mean, because she does kind of just she is sort of a transient. And I don't I don't understand why the affair had to happen. I, I don't see the utility in it. Easy. 
romance and love is always an easy way to set up strong motivations for people to do things in like the short term. Why did she have to go to Kiyamoko and not continue her activism because she has to tell Sarima what she did? That is real. I think that is the include the reason for the inclusion. But again, she there could have been many other reasons of course, for her to go to Kiyamoko. Yes, of course, of course. <laughs> so, but th- it's just an easy, I think, ugh. shortcut way for authors to to have a motivation. Well, and if you, if you knew you were going to have that romance, if you're planning out your book, why wouldn't you have set up a flirtation between Alphaba and Fiero? I, I don't know. I just find it a little weird that you're too busy talking about Lurleen Miss and all the other unnamed garden TikToks. <laughs> I, listen, I have so many pages. I have all these ideas about TikTok and Lur- goddess Lurleen and uh... like the other like mother goddess. There was a picture again, needlessly the sexual. Witch. Yeah, the oh, Cumbric the Witch. Cumbric again, Witch. Yeah. Remember there was a picture of the Cumbric Witch and she had like she was like breastfeeding something. And then her piss is what gave sentience yes, to the also animals. Also kind of weirdly needlessly sexual with the, yes. the breast. I guess breastfeeding isn't sexual. That's not what I should. But it seemed like it was presented as titillating it, even yeah. to the characters Correct. there. Yeah. If I could be a little devil's advocate, kissy mm. advocate about the or are you ad, are you are you witch at the witch's witch, advocate? Witch's advocate. <laughs> um and I'm not sure how much I believe this, but just so the way that the affair happens is it's been five years. Alphaba, you know, sort of just disappears. So she and Galinda have an audience with the wizard. Right. Which we never, which talk, we about. Don't, never <laughs> talk about. And afterwards, she's like, OK, Galinda, you go back to school. I'm going to stay here. And then she just like disappears from five years. Nobody hears from her. And Fierro is just like in the Emerald City doing whatever he does. And he's a prince, by the way. He's a prince. I think yeah. he just had to get out of the house. I think it was one of those yeah. things like, I can't let the old ball and chain and her sisters are over there. I got to go all the way to shit. Well, I think he also does like matters of state yes. things yes, he in is. the Emerald City, yeah. um, like for part of the year. And um, so he like sees Alphaba and follows her. Mm-hmm. And like they spend their first like reconnecting, and she's just like, Oh, and what about Galinda? And what about Bach? And what about so I think because yeah. she's been involved in whatever she's been involved with, which like we never meet any of her activist pals. We don't really yeah. know what it is that she's involved in. Yeah, well, um, but Oz, it requires her. <laughs> it's just we never described right, but it like requires her to be very like isolated, mm-hmm. and so like I don't know. I feel like in some ways, like through the affair, there, the author might have been like playing a little bit with the idea of like connection to other people and like. How do you do that? What does it mean? And like, I think like as a, I don't know, I feel like the point of the affair was that they could have conversations about good and evil, which I don't know if that's a great reason, but I think that was why. Yeah. Okay. I see your point there, especially as as a way for Elphaba, who has been isolating herself to become connected again Mm -hmm. to her past life where she was. I just don't buy it. I don't buy their attraction or their affair. Oh, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, it only happens for two months, y'all. When I read that, I was like, who fucking cares? Like, I, it's like, yeah. it's, they, they act like it's some deep love, but it, they just fuck a couple times over two months and then he dies. Which obviously that, you know, him dying because of his connection to Alphaba is a big deal. But I totally buy the guilt that Elphaba sure, has about Sure, I it. buy the Absolutely guilt. Absolutely, 100%. Like, but, even if I only knew someone for two months and they died because I didn't course. take the shot on my former headmistress, I right. would be messed up about that. Sure. One. Like, totally. that's I totally buy that. But we didn't need it to happen. We could have. We could have done this differently. And I think it would have made sense to do it differently because there is no strong romantic element 
in this book and I, I just don't I don't buy it. I don't buy Fiero as a character. I don't buy their attraction. I don't buy the relationship. It seems very just ah, just shoved in there, you know, oh, gotta get it in. Yes. And this Agreed. is this is the turning point by which we get into the back half of the book. Yes. Therefore, readers, you will our listeners rather. Hopefully you're not readers. Don't read yeah. this one, y'all. Don't don't do it. Don't audio to, it. Don't read it. You will have to join us in part two for this exploration. Yes. Join us next week for the conclusion of our discussion where we will uh where we will finish up discussing the plot and then talk about if we thought this should exist or not, and if uh we feel like we could fix it. All right. All right. See you then. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to another episode of Terrible Book Club. Terrible Book Club is an independent podcast produced by your hosts, Paris and Chris. Sound design and audio editing by Chris, with sound effects and music by Epidemic Sound and sometimes also Chris. Our theme song is Kiss by Yearn, which is, you guessed it, actually, also Chris. You can find more of his soothing synthy sounds on Bandcamp at yearn.bandcamp.com. Do you want us to review a book of your choice on the show? Do you want access to some extra audiovisual weirdness? If so, become a patron at patreon.com slash terriblebookclub. If you'd like to send us a one-time tip instead, you can do that at ko-fi.com slash terriblebookclub. You can also support TBC for free by sharing the show on social media, following our accounts on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or Goodreads, telling your friends about your favorite episode, or by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or anywhere else on the internet. To send us book recommendations or your adorable pet photos, send an email to terriblebookclub at gmail.com. 